Hello, everybody. In this episode of Let's Talk About It, we're going to talk about both local and foreign missions as well as foreign adoption. We want to put out this disclaimer because this is not about all people who do international missions and all people who do foreign adoptions. There are people that do these things with good hearts, with good intentions, and with their hearts and minds open. But we are talking about a small subset of people that do these things with the wrong motives. We just want to make that clear before you guys listen to this episode. Thank you all for listening. In this week's episode of Let's Talk About It, we'll start off by discussing the HBO Max documentary, Savior Complex, which attempts to answer the question, is Renee Bach a murderer? We'll try to tackle this question and more. And then in our Faith in Context segment, we'll explore the question, is local missions enough? You're here. You've joined us. Now let's talk about it. Well, hello there. Yo. It's that time again. It's the most wonderful time of the month. Let's talk about it. <laughs> I'm Malcolm Morgan. I'm Micah Morgan. And we are here to entertain you. And to perhaps teach you. Mm, and to inf- teach you and inform you. Mm. Mm-hmm. Are you not entertained? <laughs> My love, how are you doing on this wonderful day? Well, you know, just uh, taking it one step at a time. Inspiring. It's been one of those days. Inspiring. But this is good. This is a good moment. I'm here. I'm here with you and our Let's Talk About It folks. Yeah, man. It's good. How are you? Doing all right. I'm excited about this. This episode, two straight uh, reviews. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, last episode, we re- reviewed BS High. We did. And this week, we're talking about Savior Complex. My, my, my. Are we going to talk about how they changed the name of this documentary? <laughs> we should. Yes. <laughs> Originally, this documentary was supposed to be called White Savior. I Oof. think the, they felt the heat and yeah. changed it. I don't know if that would have gone over very well. Well, I don't think the content changed. So. No, no, not at all. But you want people to at least open the package. Oh, there's going to be a lot of people. There's a lot of people opening the package. Let me tell you. <laughs> um, so, yes, we're going to start off with a review of the HBO Max documentary film, Savior Complex. I am going to read... A synopsis, so I don't have to make it up. Good move. Savior Complex chronicles the controversial story surrounding Renee Bach, a young American missionary who felt called by God to set up a charity for malnourished children in, Lord help me, Jinja, Uganda. Mm. Yep. But years later, shocking allegations arose that Renee was treating the sick children herself without medical qualifications. Detailing Renee's divisive journey, the series addresses the wider questions around white saviorism and the ethics of foreign work done in the name of humanitarian and religious ideals. Well read. Thank you. <laughs> I am I am able to read. Oh, no one was questioning if you were. So, Renee Bach, American... I feel weird. Like I feel like missionary is like a thing. I just feel like this person, this person wanted to do missions... And then, um, 
and by definition, she was an evangelical missionary. I don't yeah, know. maybe I just don't. We don't like it. I don't like it, but it's true. I feel like there's like missionaries that I know that are like sounds weird, but like professional missionaries. Like they go yes. take their fam. Like it's a whole. Oh yeah. Like and the story of Renee very much complicates their story. Yeah, it's <laughs> gross. Um, so the name of her organization was Serving His Children, mm-hmm. um, and Renee started out. You know, as a as a young woman in an evangelical church, and the way she explains it, she says that she literally heard the voice of God telling her that she needed to go to Uganda. Yeah, at the age of nineteen. At the age of nineteen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so she goes there and starts kind of working with. I think she was there with, with like a group of kind of young people oh, in her yeah. age group yeah. that went and worked in various little areas, orphanages, mm-hmm. other organizations, and then. It's well, one of the things, at least that I don't fully remember from the documentary, but she bought a house at one point because she was going to stay in Uganda. Yes, she did. And from what I recall, the house was intended to be um, just a, a feeding site yeah. um, for the community, which was I, what I understand pretty typical yeah. for those kinds of missions groups mm-hmm. um, was to go over and, and provide large quantities of food yeah. for the community. It was a big house, mm-hmm. plenty of space for this purpose. Yeah. And so one of the things they talk about is this hospital that's nearby the area that was just talking about how they're just o- way over capacity mm-hmm. um, and are having to turn away people. And Renee's at this point feeding location became mm-hmm. a place where they would send people um that needed to get some more, just needed more food, not necessarily needing medical attention. Right. And I think the kind of turning point was that particular hospital was so overcrowded that it simply just didn't have space. It did not. It couldn't take everybody. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if I, if I remember correctly, there was a a member of the community who had two small babies Mm -hmm. who just needed a place to live Mm -hmm. um, where they could have regular access to food. Yes. And Renee was like, well, I've got space. Mm -hmm. And so she said yes. And that became more people. And then it became people from neighboring communities. And then people from there not even really sure where hearing about it from people that have been there or or had gone there. And it became quite a large operation. And then it became more than just a feeding operation. Mm -hmm. Um, And then she started actually um, attempting to provide medical services to these people so this is where i think it's worth well i want to tread lightly i do want to have a a humane discussion about renee right Mm -hmm. and i think it's worth saying that the way that she started providing medical care was really out of what she perceived to be necessity Mm -hmm. um and I think in the beginning, she understood herself to be essentially operating in a good Samaritan kind of role. Like mm-hmm. there was no one else who could help out these children. So why not go buy some medicine in bulk to give them? Or why not, you know, make sure that I have these medicines on hand if children come? Um, and so I think I I want to do my best to remember that part of the story because if I don't, then it, it just, it, you get very angry very quickly <laughs> when thinking about what happened with Renee. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this was, I, I struggle with that. It was needed because there was hospitals that she could have partnered with 
along the way. I don't, and there's mm. medical professionals that she could have. But they were overworked yes. and beyond capacity. Yeah. So one of the things that happened, so we can get a little bit more context, yeah. is that she did at one point, or maybe for most, some of the time, had a a nurse that helped her out from time to time, a Ugandan nurse who came in. She wasn't there every day, but she was there some of the time to help with certain medical procedures. And at one point, her agency did hire or bring on a nurse from um, another American mm-hmm. missionary who had moved to Uganda. Yep. Um, but what we find out is that she was not listening to them or going to them for advice on how to treat um, a lot of these people, especially when it came to medicines, dosages. She was just kind of making that stuff up. Um, so what we find out is that, yes, she did have some medical professionals there, but mm-hmm. she wasn't listening to them. And so that's where I kind of lose yeah. whatever sympathy I have because you're not you're not using the resource that you have. If mm-hmm. I, if I'm a person and I see a need for, you know, somebody to do surgery, I'm not going to try to do surgery to fill the need. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go partner with somebody who has the skills, the certification, everything you need to do surgery. I'm not yeah. going to go on YouTube and look it up myself and do yeah. it yeah. because that's putting people at risk unnecessarily. It is. And, and I like, I'm tracking with you for, for me, you know, my attempt to kind of temper the conversation from the beginning was was to just kind of acknowledge she was 19. Mm-hmm. She was also being pumped full of this story about what it means to go over to Uganda as a young white Christian woman mm-hmm. and essentially save the world. Yeah. And I think if you have those kinds of messages pulsing through your veins, it's very easy to go from, oh, I think I need to do this yeah. to if I don't do this, then I'm not being the savior that I should be. And I should be able to do this. And I'm justified to do this because I am the savior that I think I am. Um, and so what you're describing is where it gets really hard to watch because she wasn't just not listening to the medical professionals, but she was kind of arrogantly like talking down to them. And these were people who had gone to school (laughs) for years to get their degree. And she had gone to a two week class (laughs) on med on like emergency first aid. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where one of the, one of the quotes that they bring up um, is the God doesn't call, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Yep. That's Um, the one. And that's all well and good in certain circumstances. But you are still not qualified. God may have called you to help people in Uganda. You are still not qualified to do medical procedures and medical practices on people. Essentially experimenting on people because you don't know. Yeah. It's all an experiment. <laughs> you don't know what you're doing. Very. And so you find uh, the the American nurse is has there's attempts by her to kind of confront Renee about this Mm -hmm. and let her know that what she's doing is not right. We need more help and you need to listen to the people that you have here to help you. Um, And Renee kind of rebuffs it. And and we actually see some video evidence of her kind of dictating to doctors that are on that are on site with them what they need to be doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's kind of like the. Another another way that white saviorism um, manifests itself is that it will even make a person reject professional opinion, or not, not even opinion, but professional advice expertise, and yeah. expertise because you feel like you are God's gift to whatever the situation is. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think another thing that was, I mean, there were many things that were troubling, um, but it, it was the dishonesty. And mm-hmm. I know there, there was a, there's a portion of the interviews where she tried to explain that, well, you know, I'm not able to remember everything. Mm-hmm. Isn't it funny that when people are guilty, they, they all of a sudden don't remember things. A lot of lapse but, in memory. But when they feel like, you know, they, they're in the right, there's all of a sudden you remember every detail. Oh, the <laughs> red shirt had purple polka dots. And one of the, the third button was missing on the shirt. I do remember that. Oh, no. Well, do you remember killing this person? No, I don't recall. I don't recall. No. No. <laughs> no. And so there are moments where there's one moment where the interviewer asks, you know, did you ever complete medical procedures mm-hmm. yourself? Mm-hmm. Very clear question. Yeah. She says, no, like right into the camera. No, I would never do that. Yep. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, we have watched footage of you doing this. Mm-hmm. And so there's a piece of me that's sitting there and watching her be dishonest. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, I'm trying to like imagine how do you get to that point mm-hmm. where you know that we can see you not telling the truth. Yeah. And you still do it. And and the thing that that really kind of stood out to me is just how toxic and potent this this white saviorism messaging really is. Yeah. Is that I I think if you if you grow up and you you keep getting sent these messages that just because you are in a space, mm-hmm. that space will be better, mm-hmm. then you begin justifying anything that you do. Because if I'm there, then that's that's all that it, that it takes. Yeah. And it's just wild that someone could get to that point. I think it's something something that is mentioned in the documentary is that this kind of the scales of, well, we help this many people. Mm. So that, that counterbalances whatever bad that, that happened, right? Yeah. Same thing in the in the BSI documentary we talked about in the last episode. Roy's like, well, we, we help kids. He's like, well, yeah, there's this other very real group of kids that were not helped and are hurt mm. and are damaged after this. And so you see this weird kind of, you, you try to justify what's happening by, well, we did enough to help that we can ignore what, what happened over mm. here and not accept accountability for that because it's, it's worth it if we saved these people. Yeah. And, and it just makes me think of, um, I'm totally blanking on it right now, but there's, there's some literature that's gone around about um, white supremacy culture mm-hmm. and how it can show up in in a in a in an organizational space mm-hmm. and one of the elements of white supremacy culture is a fixation on quantifiable data yeah and you you see this moment in the documentary where they talk about how they served about 900 ish children and i think the number was like 105 mm-hmm. um, unfortunately did not survive mm-hmm. renee's care and so they point out that I don't know what the exact percentage was, but I know it was less than 14% because they kept harping on that mm-hmm. because a nearby hospital that yeah. was, you know, much higher, grander scale, mm-hmm. served about 14,000 children a year, mm-hmm. lost 14% yeah. of their children to death. And so you have these moments in the documentary where where Renee and her mom, Laura, the, the I believe, C, not CEO. She was the, um, I think she was, she led the chair. board. Yeah. 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 So her and her mother are continually re- repeating this, right? Like, oh, we, we only lost 10%, right? And it's like, to scale, mm-hmm. that's not great. Also, we would prefer not to lose any children. 
to neglectful medical care that's being done by someone who's not trained. And by the way, you're just supposed to be feeding them, not yeah. providing medical care. So that number should be a lot, lot lower than a hospital. It, it, yeah. It yeah. should be almost zero. And we also shouldn't be comparing it to a hospital <laughs> because what we later found out was that you did not have the licensure yes. to run as a medical center. Yes. And so it's just like layers and layers <laughs> of fraudulent activity yeah. of of operating in a way that you didn't have training to do, but you felt justified to do because you were white and you had a good heart and you went to Africa. Yeah. So we, we kind of fast forward through um, the 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 American nurse leaves mm-hmm. uh, the agency and sends a letter to to Renee's board kind of explaining what's happening here and you guys need to step in because I've tried other people here have tried and nothing's happening and for a while it looked like things were starting to maybe get on a better track they hired more doctors and nurses to Mm -hmm. help Um, but those doctors and nurses are either being um, usurped (laughs) um, or just outright ignored yep um, and you still see cases where children are dying mm. and it's, and it's hard to, it's what makes it difficult on the legal side is that it's hard to see what went wrong because there's no real records being kept because she's not a doctor. Right. Yeah. She hasn't been trained to keep the proper right. records. Um, she's kind of making up dosages as she goes. She doesn't really have a treatment plan. She's just kind of treating symptoms as she goes Mm -hmm. um and so it makes it difficult from a legal perspective is that there's no records and there's really no oversight of her in this agency that she's working with yeah and so the question becomes there's a moment in the documentary where all of this has been considered Mm -hmm. and the interviewer asks this american nurse is renee bach a murderer Mm mm-hmm so what do you think? It's a complicated question. Um, I think obviously murder, particularly in America, brings up images of people with knives and guns actively Mm -hmm. going out and hunting down people, Mm -hmm. for lack of better better wording. I think from a strict legal definition of the word murder, which is um, an intentional premeditated unlawful Mm -hmm. killing of a person— She's not a murderer. No, yeah, that's true. Um, it's it's hard. It's impossible to prove that based on what we know in the documentary. Mm. She is definitely res- to, to me. She's definitely responsible for the deaths of a lot of children, yeah. and her negligence in administering medical procedures and medical care without any oversight and without any training definitely makes her culpable. For the killing of these people, but it, from a legal perspective, it's very, very difficult to say that she's a murderer. Yeah, yeah. But from a moral perspective, yeah. right? Like, I think what was really hard to watch is the amount of time that passed. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I want to say, was it like six or seven years total? A while. Um. And so if you think about how many opportunities she had to look at herself and be like, oh, I actually haven't been trained to do any of this. Mm-hmm. I should stop. Like 
millions of opportunities Mm -hmm. like every second and so for me it's it's yes I know our legal system is going to have a lot of trouble proving um Mm -hmm. that she is responsible which is reflected in the documentary right it took Mm -hmm. a lot of money and a lot of time just to get a civil suit Mm -hmm. um settled with her um but it's just yeah like watching her act this fraudulently Mm -hmm. and you know, result in that many deaths is really hard to watch. Yeah. The lack of accountability is, is the scary part and what makes the story even sadder. Yeah. Um, you know, from a, from a political perspective, Uganda, even if they believe that Renee was negligent and was doing these things wrong, they're a, a very impoverished country with a high orphan, uh, rate of orf- mm-hmm. orphans. And so they are, want people to come and help them they want to have partnerships with these organizations and and people that are going to come and help help them help their people Mm -hmm. um so by and large you see throughout the documentary whether it's the police whether it's the health department all of them kind of give up oversight and give up responsibility for what's happening there because they don't want to ruffle that relationship Mm -hmm. and the help that they see either from renee or from other organizations and people like her well, and I think it was even hinted at that there was some some turning away and, and ignoring the situation yeah. because of the amount of money mm-hmm. that she was bringing in, you know, to to the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it 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 really kind of brings home the idea of just how vulnerable um, the folks in 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 um, in Uganda mm-hmm. and. Jinja, sorry, mm-hmm. I was trying to remember the name. Um, how how vulnerable they were, yeah. and to the point of accepting any help that yeah. they could get, but then also kind of cutting corners yeah. to keep that help in the in the community. Yeah, and I think I, I just remembered a, a moment from the documentary when one of the nurses that was helping at the agency says, "You know, I couldn't say anything to her because this is the only job I've ever had, and if mm. I don't work here, there's nowhere else I can work." Yeah, so these. These people who are trained, who have mm-hmm. been to school, who have the skills to do this are kind of rendered, I don't want to say useless, but they're really hampered in how they can kind of push back at Renee because they don't want to lose this job in a country that there yeah. are no other opportunities. Yeah. And even one of the doctors, um, one of the male doctors says, you know, I had no power. Yeah. I had no power to do anything because how do you say these things to your boss? Yeah. And and that right there shows you you know, when there is a power differential, there really is a responsibility on the part of the person with the power not to exploit it because the people beneath you, you know, so to speak, um, they have so much more to lose if yeah. they hold you accountable. And yeah. so you you have to be willing to hold yourself accountable. Yeah. One of the cool, I don't want to say cool, it makes it sound happy, but one of the interesting kind of side plots that develops mm. throughout this documentary is this organization called No White Saviors, which a lot of people may have heard about on social media yep, on Twitter um, and Instagram. Yep. Uh, anti-white saviorism, social media campaign founded by Olivia Alasso and Kelsey Nielsen. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they kind of, you know, show them as kind of the antithesis to what is going on with Renee. They, you know, are very, um, as we would call in America, very woke and they are doing everything they can to educate uh, the people of Uganda. And so, um, at a certain point in the documentary, Renee becomes kind of the the target of their of their campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, after these deaths start rolling in at um, serving his children, 
they start trying to ex- kind of expose Renee um, for the charlatan that she is. And I think if I could interrupt real quick, uh-huh. it's worth noting that mm-hmm. Olivia is a native of Uganda mm-hmm. and Kelsey is a white woman. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so in the beginning of the doc- in the beginning of the documentary, they make it seem like it's a collaboration that they're working together. But slowly what you see is Kelsey is Kelsey Nielsen, the white woman, is really driving mm-hmm. the no white saviors movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and it becomes very personal for her to take down Renee. So she's putting up details about where she lives, what's going on, all of these things, demonizing her. Um, and even when the when the civil case happens. Um, she is co- trying to connect with the lawyer and putting out information on their social media, mm-hmm. making it look as if they're the drivers behind this lawsuit. But what it really is, is about the families and this lawyer who want to get justice for these, for these families. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if I remember correctly, they, um, after some of the, a number of the deaths started happening, they put out Kel- or, um, Renee's ad- address and forced her to leave yeah. Uganda because mm-hmm. it wasn't safe for her. Basically, People got a hit put out on her. her yeah. um, and so they saw that as a victory, getting her out of Uganda. But after she was gone, they still wanted to get accountability uh, for Renee and her organization for what they had done. And so you kind of see them really push Renee specifically in a very intentional way. And that's really led by Kelsey Nielsen, the white woman who's over this organization. Long story short, by the end of the documentary, we find out that Kelsey Nielsen has, has left the organization for, um, did she leave? That is how they have <laughs> communicated it, that she left the organization okay. um, after allegations that she embezzled money. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, apparently, the organization was registered as a nonprofit in America, and she was able to control the bank accounts and did not give them access to the bank accounts um, and was taking money from there and as, as well was abusive to some of the staff that were part of yeah. No White Saviors. And... So we start to we see in this organization that we believe is fighting the good fight mm-hmm. is actually driven by one of these white saviors. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, just to kind of step back and, and get a little meta was, I think, very skillful on the part of yes. the documentary, you know, screenwriter and director is to weave these stories like parallel to each other yeah. in in such a masterful way that you're really watching two white saviors, um, but you don't realize it until yeah. like halfway through. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you feel the tension too. You feel the tension yeah. building with Kelsey. Yeah. Um, and because her co-founders start asking questions like, well, why are we, why don't we focus on this instead? And she's yeah. like, no, we need to do this and we need to do this. Yeah. And it was kind of like, you start to see kind of the, the cracks in the veneer a little bit there and start mm-hmm. to understand, okay, this isn't as it appears, mm-hmm. but we're still focused on kind of the Renee storyline and we're not giving that but then they kind of reveal the whole thing and they show some video of one of the founders yelling at kelsey about how she stole money from them and all of these things and you're like oh okay oh boy which you know i think as we begin to kind of pivot a little bit i i how do i say this being someone who is devoted to racial justice and living it out as best as I can, right, in the mm-hmm. spaces that I have access to um, to influence social dynamics, I don't want to get in this space where I'm just like, oh, all white people are going to do this. Um, but after you watch this documentary, it's, it's, it's just so heartbreaking. And it's like 
there's there's an air of hopelessness left at the end because there is no pivot. There's no redemptive line for Mm -hmm. Renee. There's no remorse that you Mm -hmm. can really see. And there was none for Kelsey either. The last clip that we see of her was her, you know, in in a live justifying everything that she did. And so it just it really, I think for me, shows you how important it is to realize that whiteness, you know, as a social construct is not only oppressing people of color, but also withering away at the dignity and the humanity of white people as well to be their full, dignified, kind, humble selves. Yeah. Um, and so it just reinforces the need for racial justice work to continue, like, so that we can dismantle the savior complex along with all other elements of racial injustice. Mm-hmm. And all this is going on while in America, if you guys are familiar with the movie The Blind Side, mm-hmm. um, kind of the subject of that movie, Michael Orr, um, who was a black man, a black. 18, 17, 18 year old in high school. Um, and he had been a ward of the, of the state since he was 11. And this white family, how the story is portrayed in the movie is that he was adopted by this white family. He uh, was able to secure a football scholarship to go play at Ole Miss and then eventually plays in the NFL. Um, he's actually just recently retired from the NFL, but he's been, he wrote his book. It's coming out and a part of the press tour. Mm. He talks about, how he was not adopted by the family. He was actually put under conservatorship. And so for those of you that don't know, conservatorship is basically a legal arrangement that allows um, another family or individual to make all medical contractual financial uh, financial decisions Mm -hmm. for you. Um, And he had been under that for the last 20 years. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and the way he explains it is that the family made him feel like this was because he was 18, how he had to go through an adoption process, but it was going to be called conservatorship. And yeah, so he has since come out, say, I did not agree to a conservatorship. It did not mm-hmm. fully understand that that's what I was signing up for and has he petitioned to have it dissolved, which the judge did dissolve, but not only did the judge dissolve it. The judge said he did not understand why this was put mm-hmm. into place in the first case, in the first place, because conservatorship is really for people that have a mental impairment or are d- disabled in some way and can't take care of themselves. Right. And even in the application that they put in for, for his conservatorship, it says that this person is not disabled. Oh my goodness. Obviously, he, he played college football, was in the right. NFL. Yeah. There was no mental impairments of any kind he graduated from like there's not there's there was no reason for him to be under conservatorship anyway and so now the conservatorship has been dissolved but or is now suing trying to get records um between the family that adopted him or excuse me lot fake adopted him i don't even know what you call it (laughs) get the records financially to see what they have how they've taken advantage of him over these last few years um, went out two decades um, and so all of this is happening as this this documentary comes out as this is happening and unfolding in real life wow. where even when the blind side came out I think we all realized okay this is some white saviorism here oh yeah but the kid the guy seems like he's you know it was it was positive for him right mm-hmm. and now when the story gets unraveled mm. you're like okay this really really was a situation of white yeah. saviorism <laughs> oh my goodness and so when you like peel back the curtain of both white saviorism stories, right? Mm-hmm. You have Michael Orr and his 
caretakers, mm-hmm. right? His managers. His managers. <laughs> oh my goodness. And it, it makes you question, okay, what was the motive of you essentially lying to this? Well, I guess he was 18 at the time that they initiated the conservatorship. Mm-hmm. So lying to him and saying, oh, this is the way that we're going to, you know, adopt you. It just has to be a little different. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, we're aware that he's, you know, an up and coming athlete. NFL has their eye on him. So it's kind of like, okay, did you do this so that you could exploit the yeah. money that he was getting ready to make? And then on the other side, it it makes me wonder for Renee, like when you continue to stay in Uganda, knowing that you didn't have the skills or the expertise to do what you were doing, did you do it to exploit the the feeling of being glorified yeah. of, of, of being, you know, the savior of this area. And so it really shows you on both sides or through both stories that the savior complex really is exploitative in nature. Yeah. It's, it's to get something from, whomever you are masquerading as the savior of, whether it's to get glory or to get money, whatever it is, it's not selfless. Yeah. Your motive isn't selfless. Absolutely. So in short, see the documentary. It's eye opening. It's sad. Yeah. But I think it's a necessary story and it will, I think help us. Hopefully it helps us examine our motives whether you're white, black, whatever, but understanding the motives, why we do things and not trying to mask, um, insecurity, insecurity with our trying to outweigh (laughs) some bad we've done with doing enough good. It's Mm. especially when it comes at people's expense, it's not worth it. Yeah. So, an attempt to pivot because um, I just get so sad thinking about this story. Yeah. One of the things that I, I, I'm, you know, I'm watching this for three episodes and I'm, I'm just sitting there and I'm like, it, like, do we, do we need international missions? Mm. Like all of this could have been avoided if Renee had just stayed home and gone to school for education or something. And like, <laughs> Did another thing, right? And and so I wanted to kind of talk about just this this question, is local missions enough? Mm. Like, is it enough for you to identify a need close by and to use your talent, your resources, and your time to to serve toward that end? Um, and so I guess like my my first kind of sub question that I started thinking about as I'm as I'm pondering this is how do we end up getting to the point where in so many white evangelical Christian spaces, there was this fixation on on international missions. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's still quite quite a bit of that going on now. And like you said earlier, it's a lot of it is being done well, mm-hmm. right? Um, but there really was a time in like the early 2000s where it was really a fixation, I think. Yeah. Um, and so... When you kind of think of what you know of like the history of the white evangelical church, <laughs> um, what would you say has kind of motivated this like fixation on like we need to go out as far as we can to do missions? I mean, it's really rooted in in colonialism, and mm. um, you look at 
United States or other countries, whether it's Great Britain or wherever, going to other countries and trying to civilize people. Mm-hmm. Um, even here, if you look at what happened to Native Americans, it was all about civilizing people, making them conform to the Euro aesthetic and then culturally the mm. the norms of Europe and then the religious customs. Yeah. AKA Christianity. Right. Um and so that was always a big a big push you saw in colonialism. We're gonna spread we wanna bring the gospel to these heathen people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and manifest destiny. And here we are now in twenty twenty three where now it's a multi million dollar industry mm-hmm. where you have these huge large conglomerates and organizations that are just creating a pipeline of people that are going to these countries and doing this work. Mm -hmm. And it's always, for me, it's always been a tricky thing to process because in the front of my mind, I'm like, yeah, you know, they're doing no God's work. God wants us to go into the nations. But then you're like, but I'm also just so wary of people's motivations for why they, why they're doing this. What perspective are they coming to? Mm -hmm. Are they going there? To minister to people, or do they want to go there to change people? Which I think is two different things. That's two different things, yeah. And I think too the the realization that there's been kind of this evolution of the manifest destiny yeah. um, campaign, yeah. Uh, in in kind of the speaking like in a social kind of dynamic, the white church, mm-hmm. um, it really does create this skepticism like you said right like is that the thing that's still motivating it or are you really going to to spread the gospel Mm -hmm. um and so what i don't want to communicate is that scripture you know doesn't explicitly say Mm -hmm. yes i want you to go make disciples of all the nations like Mm -hmm. absolutely we know that that's said in the book of matthew but for me it's if you know that there are communities within a several mile radius of you Mm -hmm. that could use your resources and your time, but you choose to go thousands of miles away instead. Yeah. To me that, I don't know that to me feels like evidence that there's something else that you're trying to get out of this. Um, And so the other thing too, I think is, not only the kind of evolution of the Manifest Destiny campaign, but also, like I said, the ways that, that scripture have been scripture has been interpreted, I think, has also lent to this, right? So you have the go and make disciples of, of all the nations in Matthew 28. Um, you've got Acts 1, 1 through 8, where Jesus instructs the disciples to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And you've got First Timothy 2 and 4, um, God's desire is for all people to come to the knowledge of truth. And so I think scriptures like these have been proof text, right, yeah. as motivators for this kind of behavior. Um, but I think what, what I also like to temper it with is like the story of the Good Samaritan, mm-hmm. right, where you have Jesus kind of re-exegeting or re-explaining um, what it means to be a good neighbor. Yeah. Um, and, you know, part of the story is understanding that you should you should be a good neighbor to everyone, right? There's mm-hmm. no specific kind of race or social background mm-hmm. that qualifies someone to be your neighbor. But I think, too, what, what we lament in the story of the Good Samaritan is that you had people who were local to the man who had been beat up and robbed. Mm-hmm. You know, you had the priest and you had the Levite mm-hmm. walk by. Yeah. Right? 
And it wasn't until a foreigner saw this man that he was helped. Yeah. And so it's it's not just celebrating that we've re- redefined the neighbor, but it's also lamenting that we yeah. we have forsaken, you know, t- paying attention to suffering that's near us mm-hmm. because we want to get that that kind of glorified feeling out of coming to the aid of people who are very different from us. Yeah. Yeah. It's I, I I'm thinking about like people that adopt and go to other countries and adopt children. Um, yeah. And so it's like, no, we have children here that need to be adopted that are in need of family and connection and all those things. Mm-hmm. But so many people make the choice to go to China or Russia or Uganda, wherever yeah. to adopt children. It's, it's that same mindset, right? It's that same mindset of, I need to save them. Mm. Like they're they're in a dire situation. I need to save them. Over there. Over there. That's where the problems are. Not here. Yeah. We're good over here. Somebody else will handle those kids, but those kids over there really, really need help. Yeah. I think one of the scriptures um, is that is is it? I thought it was in Revelation, but I think you ha- I think it's in Matthew as well. Basically talking about how until the gospel is preached to the whole world. Oh yeah. Jesus won't come back. Essentially, Jesus isn't coming back until the gospel is preached to the whole world. Yeah, and I've, Matthew. I've been in I've been in contexts, um, in church contexts where that has been preached. Like, mm-hmm. hey, this is why we need to go and do this. This is why we need to go if we want Jesus to come back and be happy with us and to come back for His bride. We've got to make sure every corner of the world is touched with the gospel. Mm. And so it's 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 a couple things. It's you know trying to go into these what they call dark corners of the world and yeah. give them the light of Jesus. But also I want to go to heaven and I want God to be pleased mm-hmm. when he comes. I want Jesus to be pleased when he comes back. So I need to do this to make God happy. That's the only way that we're all, this is all going to end in the end. Yeah. <laughs> oh goodness. And so it's fear. It's the same thing we use with oh, the imagery yeah. we use about hell to, mm-hmm. to get people to come to the altar and get mm-hmm. prayer. Do you want to go to hell? Well, then come down and accept Jesus. It's yeah. the same. It's the same thing that we're preaching people. But now we've attached mission work and missional efforts to that mm-hmm. and put pressure on people and made them feel like if they're not. I mean, we've we've met people and have done ministry with people who if they didn't feel like they were in the in the dirt of the dirt if they didn't feel like they were in the 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 darkest in the trenches that's the word i was looking for the trenches they didn't feel like they were doing real ministry and it's like no there's ministry everywhere Everywhere. the the world your neighborhood your home your family your job is a mission field you don't just have to go to uganda or insert other country here Mm -hmm. to feel like you're really doing the work of ministry yeah yeah gosh and that so you know just the layers, right? Mm-hmm. Because on the one hand, absolutely, we want the Lord to be pleased with the way that we are demonstrating the gospel. Um, and we want the gospel to be heard and felt mm-hmm. and experienced mm-hmm. to the edges of the of the world, right? Mm-hmm. And also, every person who does ministry really far away isn't doing it explicitly or at least consciously to yeah. to get glory or to exploit the the area and so it just it really 
it just brings forth lament, right? That we've that we've had such a huge um kind of part of the mission story kind of tainted yeah. by yep. this this and I, I don't think it's I don't think it's an improper focus, right? Mm-hmm. Because we're not saying international missions is wrong. Yeah. I think it's an issue of priorities. Yeah. I think if we are, if we're constantly kind of saying like, no, this, like, this is the best thing that we should do is to go as far away as possible and to do the hardest work possible. And it's like, you end up neglecting Mm -hmm. so much that could be done to bring forth God's character and to show what the gospel is here near you. It almost makes me wonder as God sees that happening, like, are we really hastening yeah. Jesus's return? Because while you're neglecting what's near you, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. you're not really, you're not really tipping the scale. We've made an idol out of it. Yeah. We've made an idol out of it, out of going to the nations and being, being international churches and, you know, opening orphanages and doing all of these things overseas. Yeah. We've made an idol out of it. It's the same, you know, it's the same concept when you think about, um, people that are in ministry but neglect their own family mm. to do that. Yeah. You know, well, God's called me to do this. Yeah, He also called you to your family. Your family also first needs to you. your family. Yes, your family is your first ministry. Yeah, and if you neglect that to do ministry where there's preaching, teaching, singing, whatever, you're not doing it. You're you're not doing anyone any good. That doesn't balance it out. Yeah, yeah, you've got a deficit here at home. Yeah. And- what you tip the scale two points over you know like if we're thinking of a point system okay i'm down one in the family but i'm up two in ministry so yay you gained a point (laughs) right and it's like yeah people have good intentions everyone is motivated by fear yeah that's the reality and so i'm just you know for me as i kind of pivot to think about like what what do i want to take away (laughs) lord have mercy um from, you know, the Savior Complex documentary, from exploring, you know, is local missions enough? I think it's really an invitation to make sure that I don't become desensitized to the human desire to be glorified. Yeah. I think when we really take, <laughs> really take Genesis chapter three for what it is, yeah. it's an exploration of the propensity for sin that we all have within us is not just white people, mm-hmm. but everyone wants to feel glorified. Everyone kind of wants to be worshiped. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's really important to check for that. Like, am I feeding that twisted desire in this situation? Um, but then secondly, like making sure that I, I I'm willing to focus first on the suffering around me intending to that first yeah. before I go to such great lengths and, into such great distances to address suffering elsewhere. Another, I think another thing to take away from it is um, if there's work, if there's a need somewhere, if there's um, a deficit in a a, a community, it's okay to partner with somebody else that does the work. I would even encourage it. That's very important. Um, God may have called you to a place to do ministry, but he's called you to work within the capacities and the abilities that you have. And so don't feel like you are robbing God or that you are dishonoring God by partnering with others who are also doing the work. Um, Whether it's you financially supporting another organization or whether it's you literally partnering and having somebody else do a different different part of the job that they're more certified and trained in 
it's okay. You're not, your witness is not any weaker because of that. (laughs) You know what, though? I'm going to be big and bold and I will raise you. (laughs) I would say that it's actually the better. Yeah. The better version of service to do it in community and in collaboration, because even God themselves works in community in the Trinity. And so honestly, this fixation on like, I'm going to go do this thing and I'm going to do it by myself. That really feels a little anti, (laughs) you know, like it's not really what God is demonstrating for us. Um, So I would take what you said a step further and say, seek that Mm -hmm. as your ideal. Well, as you guys know, we like to end our episodes by saying this is not the end of the conversation. We'd love to hear what you guys think about this documentary, what you think about local missions, um, and even maybe some of your stories about how, um, whether you went and did missions or you wanted to do missions, what was God saying to you? Maybe did you feel convicted about Mm. some of the things that you thought and believed about yourself in that process? We'd love to hear about it. Use the hashtag talk about it pod that's talk about it pod and connect with us on social media we'd love to hear more about it i am at malcolm dot media on instagram and threads michael where can people find you you can find me on instagram at j.marie.morgan and on threads sometimes at the same handle Once again, we love that you guys are interacting with this content, sharing it, listening to it, giving us your feedback on it. It means a lot that you guys take time out of your regular diets of podcasts and television shows yeah. and movies to listen with the, to what this wonderful little couple has to say <laughs> about so many things. Is that it? I think that's it. That's it? That's the thing that we did. Well, this has been another sad and depressing episode (laughs) of Let's Talk About It. (laughs) I can't promise you the next one will be happy, but I can promise you that it will be just as informative and impactful. (laughs) This is Malcolm Morgan. And Micah Morgan. And we'll see you all next time.